Friends, I invite you to join me in prayer. May your spirit open our eyes to see your presence in the world. May your spirit unstop our ears to hear the good news of the gospel through Jesus Christ as it is proclaimed today. May your spirit transform our hearts so that we might know and understand the deep love you have for us. Amen. Who are you? What's your name? Would you like to play a game? Let's pretend we haven't met. I'll ask you questions. Now get set. So begins the text of a children's book from the 1970s. Tells you my age. Um, it's a book about identity, about who we are, how we're shaped by our geographic context, our neighborhoods, our toys, the look and feel of our bodies and our names. It ends with names. Your name, is it Maud? Is it Nancy? Do you have a name that's fancy? Is it Joe or even Caesar? Do they call you Ebenezer? When your mother wants you home for lunch, does she call you Honey Bunch? Do you have a silly name like Pickle Noodle Schmoogle Mane? Sydney, Sadie, Sam, or Sue? Is your name just right for you? Who are you? We've been talking about this question in our worship services since Easter, asking this with a plural you. Who are you all? Who are you, the church? And we've looked at what it means to be the church and the biblical metaphors that help describe this Holy Spirit-sustained group of Christ followers that has lasted for 2,000 years. Praise God. Pastor Paul spoke about how the church isn't a building, but is the people of God. Pastor Colby invited us to ponder what it means to be the body of Christ and how when one part suffers, other parts suffer with it. Last week, Pastor Lars preached from John's Gospel and focused on how Jesus is the good shepherd and we are the flock, the flock who is of exceeding, ridiculous, lavish value to Jesus. And today our focus is Romans 8, particularly verses 14 through 17, and I invite you to listen to this text again. All who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God, so you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now you call him Abba, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. In the Roman world, the time this letter was written, the household was the primary locus of identity. It was overseen by the paterfamilias, the oldest male relation, who had ultimate, absolute rule. And when a child was born, someone would bring the child to the father and place the child on the floor in front of him. And when he lifted the child up, this indicated his or her acceptance to the family. You can cue the Lion King here. <laughs> but if the child was weak, or disabled, 
or a girl, if there were already a lot of girls. Someone, the child would be left on the floor, which indicated that it was someone's responsibility to take that child up, take him or her out of town, and leave them on the garbage heap or the dung pile to die. This was called exposure. Some children wouldn't die. They'd get a little more lucky. Someone would find them and be in need of a slave, so they'd be taken in by a family and raised as a slave. A slave who probably spent much of his or her life living in fear. Sometimes we talk about slavery today. You hear that there are more slaves than ever right now. When we talk about slavery and trafficking at church, and my children ask about it, I tell them that slavery is when a person is treated like a possession, that they're bought and sold as an object. And this was the same for the slaves in the first century. And there were slaves listening to this letter being read. Romans, to those of you who are new to the Bible, is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of house churches in Rome. The letter would have been read or probably performed aloud all at once, all 16 chapters of it, to a group of Jesus followers in someone's home. And the letter would be passed around and read at each of these small groups of Jesus followers. We know the names of some of the people who heard this letter because at the end, Paul greets people by name. He names 24 people, and scholars believe that upwards of 14 of these people could have been slaves. Paul said, you did not receive the spirit of slavery leading back to fear. In this letter, Paul has already talked a lot about slavery. He's talked about slavery to sin. Especially in chapter 6, Paul writes that because our sinful selves were crucified with Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. Sin is no longer your master, Paul writes. Because we know that when master sin rules over you, you have to do what you're told. So you live in fear, and it's this fear Paul is tapping into. Slavery to sin, slavery to fear, they go hand in hand. Now, we are no longer under master sin, but we still experience sin in our lives for those of us who are followers of Jesus. And it's the same with fear. We're no longer under the rule of master fear, but we still experience fear in our lives. And this is the same for the Christ followers who are hearing this letter because they had every reason to be afraid. These people were the Christian Gentiles and Jews who understood fear. The Jewish community, of which the, the Christian group was a sect, was deeply despised and hated. Periodically, Leaders would declare a time of deportation, and, and Jews would be sent out in mass, mass expulsions. This happened in AD 19 in Rome, and again about 30 years later. Now, there were many Gentiles who were attracted to Judaism, and therefore this Christ-following group that had sprung up from out of Judaism. And in Christianity, followers of Christ proclaimed Christos Kyrios, Jesus is Lord. And when you proclaim Christos Kyrios, Jesus is Lord, what is meant is Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And this is treason. And it leads to persecution. Full throttle persecution of Christians didn't begin until 64, but this letter was written in the late 50s, and persecution doesn't arise out of nothing. 
There were also the reputations of Christianity that Christians had to deal with. People didn't understand it. On the outside, there were rumors that it was incestual and cannibalistic, a disgusting superstition. Christians were not popular people. There's reason for the church to be afraid. And today, too, it's really easy to be afraid. They're the big ticket items that loom in the distance or sometimes the not too far distance. Cyber attacks, economic collapse, terrorism. Every time we fly on an airplane, we participate in this theater of security that reminds us to be afraid. Where else can people hide weapons? What new ways of killing can people think of? And then there's the personal fears we have. Fears that we are told to by some um, advertising industry or fashion and health magazines. Fear aging. Fear losing physical ability. Fear becoming offensive by how you look or smell. People fear food. They fear the way it's grown or processed or sold or what it may or may not do to our bodies. For those who have children, there are many fears. We're just afraid of the whole enterprise turning out badly. Hope my children will be a good citizen and won't become a criminal or an addict or become imprisoned or be killed in an untimely way or die. No one wants to see their child die before them. We're afraid. Or if those things don't happen, maybe they'll just be unhappy. We can fear that too. We fear failure, embarrassment, shame, getting it wrong, being corrected, being found to be a phony. We fear being alone. We fear that no one will love and accept us. We are not immune to fear. I add that there is a difference between caution and fear. I'm not encouraging a life without caution. There's a difference between holding yourself up in your house for fear of being hit by a car in a brazen walk down the center of 55th. We learn this balance from life and also the wisdom, I would say, that's given to us by the Holy Spirit. This is the same Spirit who witnesses our adoption by God, as our text tells us. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs to his glory. Early Christians did not expose infants. In fact, they, they did the opposite. They went out to the trash heap, the dung pile, and took those infants into their families, not as slaves or even servants, but they adopted him, them. This is one of the way Christianity spread. And in the Roman culture of the time, an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to continue his name and receive his inheritance. He was not inferior to a biological son. In fact, if he represented his father well, he might enjoy his father's affection just as much or more than the biological son. Also, Roman adoption had to be attested to by witnesses. And here in the text, the spirit is the attesting witness that God adopts believers in Jesus as his own children, his own heirs. The Greek here does mean adopted as sons, and that's important for us to notice, because even though we are all called God's children, we are adopted as sons. 
and sons in first century AD were the people with the full privilege and full responsibility to live in the household of their father. Men and women, boys and girls, God calls us all to be adopted as sons, not fearful slaves, adopted heirs. And heirs live differently than slaves. I used to work for a third generation heir of a very large international company. And at age 25, he had his own mid-century modern home that had been featured in all these architectural magazines. He would take helicopter lessons, fly, uh, helicopter flying lessons on really sunny days and come into work late. And that was okay, because he was the boss. He hired people to work for him that gave him good counsel, and he never worried about provision. He, he didn't gloat over his position in life, but lived into it with the privilege and responsibility it was. He took tons of risks, risks starting new companies and risks I never would have dreamed of because I'm just not an heir like he is. And we never had a conversation about it, but I garnered that our views of resources were completely different. He was looking at the long view how culture and technology were changing and how he could be an influence in that, and I was concerned about how much lunch cost. And this is the kind of heir that God calls us to be. Not fearful slaves wondering we will, when we will be sold next or minding our steps so we don't get beaten, but sons, adopted heirs with full privilege and responsibility and glory. So much glory. Heirs who see the long view of Christ's kingdom on earth. Now, we will each live into this being heirs differently as God has called us. But all of us who are adopted as heirs no longer have to worry about our identity. We do not have to live in fear, no matter the circumstances, because we are in the household of the ultimate paterfamilias. And God invites us to join him in this long view. We don't have to worry about how much lunch costs or harbor a grudge or worry about our children being accepted into the right college, making sure they're safe 100% of the time, because God is good and merciful. Now, does this mean that bad things won't happen to heirs? No, bad things happen to heirs. But it does mean that when bad things happen, we can remember that we are not our own but belong body and soul in life and death to our faithful savior, Jesus Christ. Because this is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has gone outside of town to that dung heap, that trash pile. He's found an exposed infant, one who's been thrown aside, not wanted, and he picks that infant up. Jesus holds that infant to his chest and carries them to God the Father. And there he places the infant at the feet of God, and God picks them up, accepting them as full heir into God's family. And the Holy Spirit is witness to this. Jesus rescues us from the dung heap and places us at the feet of the Father, and the Spirit witnesses God raising us up in acceptance into the family of God. This is the gospel. Jesus rescues, God adopts, the Spirit gives witness. Say this with me. Jesus rescues, God adopts, the Spirit witnesses. We are adopted into the family of God. So we're brothers and sisters in Christ. This is our identity. 
Not people who are slaves to master sin or master fear. Not people who stay awake worrying. Not people who live in constant anxiety. People who are free because of who we are in Jesus Christ. So what does it look like to live into this identity as heirs? What can we learn from heirs? Now, remember, an heir doesn't act a certain way to become an heir. God adopts. Heirs are adopted in. And then they respond in thanksgiving because that's what heirs do. So I thought of a few things this week that, that might be an indicator of an heir. This is not the final list on this. Just some thoughts. So um, first, heirs prioritize learning. They know who and what they represent. They know and love their father and show this by learning about the realm that they have inherited. We can do this too, through study of scripture, theology, history of the church. We do this through a deep and loving interaction with the world God has made. This is why so many Christian colleges have liberal arts curriculums, so that young adults learn about the world and have an expansive, long-view vision. This is why Pastor Lars is leading the Canopy course, in which he invited members of our church community to study spiritual theology and gain a large-scale vision of the entire tree canopy. This is the long view. Second, an heir is confident in their identity as one who is loved. They know and trust the love of their family and their patrifamilias, the secure group of people who want the best for them, so they can go out and do good work. They are able to reach out to others without fear because they know they are loved. There is a being lovedness sense about them. Think about influential Christians in your life. When I thought about people I know who I have personal relationships with and writers um, like Madeline Lingle or Frederick Buechner, even Fred Rogers, these are people who lead and work from a deep sense of being loved. Finally, Heirs do not focus on the small things. They have a long view, a long vision. Even when they are inconsequential people, that's in quotes, nobody's inconsequential, but as thought so by their society, like the slaves listening to this letter, they knew their work for God's kingdom was not in vain. And this is what Paul praises at the end of Acts, 16, at the end of Acts in chapter 16 when he names his friends. These are the heirs, Priscilla and Aquila, who risk their lives for Paul. Phoebe, who is worthy of honor among God's people. Adronicus and Junia, who were imprisoned with Paul. Fellow heirs, do not let yourself get pulled down by small things. Trust our paterfamilias, our divine parent, and his ultimate rule and authority. Live as an heir, no matter your vocation. It matters. You are God's heir. Who are you? What's your name? Would you like to play a game? When a baby is born today, we don't put them at the feet of the paterfamilias. We put them in a bassinet if we're at the hospital, and they put a tag on it. But you know what I noticed? The baby's name isn't on the tag, just the mother's. And it's because this is a baby's first identity, their parent. And so it is with us. We must first know our identity in God, our adoption into God's family, and then God reveals who we are, our true self. 
John Calvin, the 14th century refugee pastor and theologian, writes at the beginning of his giant work of theology, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. And without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. Your personal identity, your name, whether it's Joe or Caesar or Priscilla or Aquila or Adronicus or Junia, is deeply important to God. But equally is your identity as God's son or God's daughter. And together we're rescued by Jesus, who goes out to that garbage heap, that dung pile, and picks us up. He holds us tight, even though we're smelly and dirty. And he places us at the feet of the Father. The Father picks us up and says, this is my adopted heir, my son, my daughter. And the Spirit gives witness. People of God, you are the adopted heirs with the privileges and responsibility that entails. Amen. Let's pray briefly. Oh, Spirit who gives witness to our adoption, will you etch this on our minds? Will you etch this on everything that we see so we are always remembering our identity as adopted sons and daughters, heirs of God, so that we may live into the privilege and the responsibility that entails through the grace and mercy given us by Christ. Amen. We're going to have a brief opportunity to respond. The ushers are going to start passing out some name tags right now. And if you need a pen, they'll have a pen too. And I encourage you to take one. I think we might need a little more ushering help. Usually we put on name tags for other people to know who we are. But this time I want you to think of this name tag as something to help you know and you remember who you are. It's up to you what to write in this name tag. Maybe you need to remember that you are an adopted heir of God. You could write that, or you could write daughter of God or son of God. You could write adopted heir. You could stick this on your Bible or in your journal or in your notebook. You could take a picture of it once you've written on it with your phone and put it on your screen. So every time you turn your phone on, you're reminded who and whose you are. It's up to you. Maybe you look at this name tag and you feel a little weird. You think, I don't know about this. I'm not sure about this adopted by God thing. Maybe you've never thought about it. That's okay. If you've never really thought about it, I invite you to use this name tag as an opportunity to pray, an opportunity to spend some silence, asking God, who am I? Who am I in you? So let's take a few moments to ponder this and write, and then we're going to pray together. And during the pastoral prayer, there will be a a time for us to voice our intercessions to God.